Here is a fun fact about Anne M. Martin's Babysitter's Club series. And the serious fans out there might already know it. The first four books in the series are an especially big deal, since each one offered readers, for the very first time, a peek into the point of view of one of the original babysitters, Christy, Claudia, Stacy, and Marianne. From there, the books continued to rotate perspectives, but for readers just coming to the series when it started in the late 80s, these early introductions were kind of major. On episode 240 of SSR, my guest and I examine the introduction that BSC fans got to Stacy McGill in book three, The Truth About Stacy. It's worth noting up front that we both think this title is a little misleading, but more on that later. In The Truth About Stacy, our narrator deals with ongoing anxiety about her diabetes diagnosis, which is driven largely by her parents' insistence that she keeps seeing new doctors and seeking new treatments. Stacy has learned to manage her diabetes and really just wants to enjoy her new life in Stony Brook, especially now that the Babysitter's Club is up and running. Unfortunately, other kids in town have noticed that the BSC is going strong too. And while Stacy is managing what's happening with her health, the club must collectively face a competitive business led by eighth graders with later curfews. We know that this Babysitter's Club agency is no match for the original sitters, but the girls need to prove that to their clients too. And they do, in The Truth About Stacy, My guest and I loved this entrepreneurial storyline, and we talk all about it in this episode. We also talk about how much this series meant to her when she was a kid, how the book models healthy responses to stressful situations, friend breakups and makeups, bodily agency, and the way jealousy is often used as an excuse for bad behavior. There is a very brief mention of infertility in this episode, so please be aware of that. Today's guest is Rochelle Bilo, who is a romance writer, a food writer, and a writer-writer. She is a graduate of the French Culinary Institute and has worked as a baker, a line cook, and the social media manager for Bon Appetit and Cooking Light magazines. Her articles about home cooking, restaurants, food news and trends, spirits, groceries, and products have been published in a variety of national publications, including Eating Well, Food and Wine, Serious Eats, The Kitchen, and The Spruce Eats. Rochelle's first book, a romantic farming memoir titled The Call of the Farm, was published in 2014. Her second book and fiction debut is called Ruby Spencer's Whiskey Year and is now available from Berkeley Romance. Learn more about Rochelle and her work at RochelleBiloWriting.com and by following her on Instagram at RochelleBilo. If you love what you hear today, which I know you will, it would mean so much to me if you would take a screenshot of this episode wherever you're listening to it and post that screenshot to your Instagram story. Please tag me at SSRPod so I can see it and share. You can keep up with all of the newest podcast happenings on Instagram, and I also post on Twitter at SSRPod and on Facebook at the SSR Podcast and the SSR Book Club. You can also show your support for the show by telling a friend or by leaving a five-star rating or review. As always, there is a lot of fun stuff happening in the SSR Patreon community. I have been dropping bonus episodes, reading recap videos, newsletters, weekly Q&As with guests like Rochelle, and more. And the Discord has been buzzing with chatter about books, recent episodes, and the latest season of Love is Blind. In April, the Patreon SWR, that's Shit We Read, book club, is reading Joe Piazza and Christine Pride's We Are Not Like Them. Joe Piazza will actually be joining us for our book club meeting at the end of the month. It's not too late to join in for that discussion, and it's definitely never too late to become part of the Patreon family so that you can enjoy all of the perks I just mentioned. Plus, when you sign up, you will know that you are playing an active role in keeping this independent podcast going strong for as little as $1 per month. Learn more and get involved at www.patreon.com SSRpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. Find your next great audiobook at Libro.fm and use code SSRpodcast when prompted to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, is a great place to buy audiobooks because it supports indie booksellers instead of giant corporations. The audiobooks you buy there will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. I recently grabbed Daisy Jones and the Six on audio because so many of you recommended it to me in that format. Okay, friends, it's time to hang with the BSC. 
Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Rochelle. Welcome to SSR. Thank you. Happy to be here. We're talking about book three in the Babysitter's Club series, The Truth About Stacy. And before we go any further, I'm just curious about your personal history with the Babysitter's Club more broadly. Well, I think the best way to answer that question is when I was younger, I told my mother and father and sister that I was changing my name to Stacy and that they had to call me Stacy until I was 18 and legally able to do it, that they had to just follow their rules and call me Stacy. So to say that I read The Babysitter's Club might be a minor understatement. <laughs> wow. I think this is an yeah. SSR first. I don't know that we've ever had somebody come on the podcast and talk about wanting to change their name because of a character from one of the books we've talked about on the show and certainly not Babysitter's Club specific. So this is really big. So not only did you love the babysitters, but you loved Stacy specifically. She was everything to me. I just thought she was the coolest, obviously so stylish, and I just aspired to be her. I remember, we'll get into this when we kind of start talking about the book, but I remember vividly reading about her and just I would start adopting her, like the way she spoke, you know, I would just like speak like Stacy and I would just try and just study the text, I guess. Like, that's what I was doing. Now I know, you know, age nine or whatever, to just learn how to be like her. I just loved her. <laughs> yeah, Stacy's definitely like the aspirational babysitter. I feel like Stacy and Claudia, was there a babysitter that you felt like you were more similar to? Like if Stacy was your North Star, was there another babysitter that seemed like more similar to you at the time? Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I think it was very apparent which member of the BSEI actually was because for Christmas one year, I got a Marianne doll. Oh, got it. <laughs> okay. Like, yeah. So we're on the Marianne to Stacy pipeline here. Yes. <laughs> and I think I, in a previous podcast, didn't you say that you had a similar kind of reaction to them that you felt more aligned with Marianne, but you kind of had aspirations of Stacy, or was it someone else? No, I feel like I'm always kind of, as I've been on like my journey with this podcast or whatever and reading Babysitter's Club books throughout my experience hosting it, I feel like I've adjusted over time, like my understanding of the babysitters and of myself in relation to the babysitters. So I definitely was a Marianne as a kid. I was bookish. I was shy. I was really nervous socially. I think that I wanted to be Claudia and Stacy, probably more Stacy also. So we share that. And I think as I've gotten older, I've realized that I, I don't know if I always was a Christie a little bit or if I've just become a Christie, but I think because these books are written in such a way that like we get that classic breakdown of who these girls are at the beginning, the fact that Christie was always like the tomboy and like she does sports, I never did sports. And so I was like, well, I could never be a Christie. And the beauty of coming to these books as an adult is that I'm like, oh no, like Christy did other stuff other than sports. And so maybe I'm learning to relate to her a little bit more as I've gotten older. I think that's so funny you said that because that was my reaction to her too. I have always been and continue to be the type of person who, when you throw a ball at me, I will like duck and run away. I will not try and hit it or catch it. <laughs> so my experience when I was younger of reading Christy was Absolutely. I have nothing in common with her. I don't know this, this girl. And when I read The Truth About Stacy, my reintroduction to Christy was the overwhelming 
character trait that I got from her is she's entrepreneurial. She's brave and she's bold. And like all of that was lost on me when I was younger. I don't even like, rem- I don't think they even mention her doing sports in this book really at all. You know? <laughs> I don't think so either. Like there's, I think there's one moment at the beginning when Stacy's like introducing us to everybody where she's like, I am, you know, I'm tightest with Claudia. I couldn't live without Marianne and Christy. And I think there was something about like, they're not as mature as I am. They're not as into boys. And like, Christy is always doing the sports. But I think that <laughs> yes, was like the right. only, I think that was the only mention of it. And I think that this, yeah. we also see a little bit of like a softer side of Christy in this book, which we'll talk about because we see like something that she really cares about being attacked. And usually like she doesn't let that facade slip. So that was kind of interesting. Yeah, for sure. It was such a wild ride. Because <laughs> this was my first foray. Even though I've been listening along to the podcast, when you and previous guests have talked about BSC books, I recall them, but I've never done a read along. And so this was my first dive back into it, you know, for 20 years, 25 years. <laughs> so I'm like, wait, let me do that now. So yeah, it's definitely uh, different than I thought it was. Like different than I remembered it. Well, I have to close the loop. Did your family agree to call you Stacy for any portion of the nine years that followed that request? No, not mm. at all. <laughs> Did they laugh at you? Like what was their response? I mean, I think my sister was, you know, laughed at me and made fun of me. She's right. the older sister. That's so her job. She had to. Yeah, totally. And I think my parents indulged me in different ways. You know, they would get me Babysitter's Club books. They would get me the dolls. I I remember um, at one point when I first started babysitting, my mom got materials for me to make a kid kit. So I think that they tried. Yeah, I know. She is great. My mom is a former librarian, so she gets it. Yeah, she's so cool. Yeah. (laughs) But so they indulged me without doing, you know, the full on our daughter is (laughs) transforming into a fictional character (laughs) indulgence. That feels like the right approach. I mean, I do not have children, so I'm certainly not a parenting expert, but that that seems like the kind of thing that would be advisable in this situation. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and I'm glad I didn't change my name to Stacey. I, I mean, Rochelle's not bad. I think Rochelle's cool. <laughs> it often gets mispronounced, but there are worse things in the world. Yeah, I feel like there are a lot of other aspirational book characters that are named Rochelle. And so hopefully you've embraced that over the years. Yeah, for sure. I also remember the first R-rated movie I ever saw was The Craft. Is that star- It was um, a movie about teen Wiccans, oh. and one of the characters' names was Rochelle, and I felt so cool. <laughs> that, like, and that was the beginning of my teen Wicca period. <laughs> like, take that, Stacy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. We don't need you. <laughs> what do you think it is about this series? as a whole and like this group of girls that has left such a lasting impression on pop culture and on like the generations of readers. I mean, I think that this is a series that even people who don't identify as adults, as readers or writers or book people, the Babysitter's Club like still has touched all of them in some way. And you can strike up a conversation with like most I would say like millennial women about the babysitters and they'll know exactly what you're talking about. Do you have any thoughts about why that is? I do. And it's similar to why I think romance is having a resurgence right Mm -hmm. now and why, you know, that kind of contemporary upmarket romance or rom-coms in specific are doing so well right now. When you read the Babysitter's Club books, as when you read a romance, you know that good will prevail. You know that you'll have a happy ever after. You know that things will wrap up nicely and you'll feel warm and cozy at the end. So it gives you permission and a safe space to explore challenging themes throughout the book. So you and the characters might struggle. You might have some hard times. You'll learn and you'll grow, but it feels okay and safe to do those things because you know it's going to be okay in the end. As a young child reading BSC, I didn't have awareness of that, but that was very apparent to me reading it now. Is I actually read this book on as my kind of like nighttime no, <laughs> read so for crazy. a couple nights in a row. <laughs> that was the overwhelming experience that I had was just this warm hug of reading it. Even when things were getting a little dicey and the plot was starting to ramp up, I felt like I know this is going to be okay in the end. And it just made me feel so warm and safe. Yeah. Well, there's like, it's formulaic. And I think 
whether, like you said, I don't know that I knew this as a kid, but the way that Anne M. Martin wrote the books in this consistent way, it does give you this like innate sense as a reader picking up a new book. Like I would just grab any Babysitter's Club book off the shelf. I don't think I really own many of them. This was definitely like a school library thing. And I would just like grab a book off a shelf and you knew what was going to happen. You knew you were going to meet the girls. You knew that like the A plot was going to be introduced and then the B plot was going to be introduced. And at the end, like somehow everything was going to work out and these girls would be friends again. And I think yeah, we can look at that now as adults and be like, that's a formula, but that's why it worked. And that's why it gave us so many warm, fuzzy feelings. Yeah, definitely. And I also think I don't want to underplay the lasting impact that the fashion choices of the Babysitter's Club had on us. Yeah. And I was so disappointed. So I went first went to my local library to borrow the book and they didn't have it. They only had the graphic novels. So I decided to buy a copy on Amazon and I tried so hard to get the original cover, but I'm showing you right now, I could only buy the cartoon cover, you know, and it's just made me so sad because one thing I loved as a young reader was just studying their outfits. The I mean, the, it was not a photograph, but the drawings were so realistic. They looked like, you know, a picture of your best friend and just the way that their clothes were depicted were just, they definitely influenced so many of my fashion choices when I was younger. And since nostalgia fashion is so big right now, I think that does kind of help with the rekindling of our interest in the series. I think that's true. I also could only find this uh, this newer cartoon cover and it does not have the same effect. I know that this was, I think, the second book that was published as a full graphic novel in, I believe, 2015. And so I'm curious, I haven't seen the graphic novel. I'm curious, like, how much the fashion of that graphic novel is influenced by, like, the original book books versus how much of it was absorbed into, like, a more contemporary look. Did you happen to watch the Netflix adaptation? I did not because I made a very conscious choice for me the only thing that belongs in babysitters film TV canon was the movie with Rachel Lee Cook and, you know, that whole crew. And I just felt like it, I was scared it would ruin it, mm. which was why I didn't watch the new Hocus Pocus. You know, it's yeah. just like, I can't, I can't. It has to live in, in perfection. Did you watch it? I did. And it's really good. And I will say that the fashion is really fun. Like that's one of my favorite things about it, especially like I feel like they gave Claudia and Stacy in particular their due as far as how we as a generation pictured them when we were kids. And of course, we're sort of having this like resurgence of 90s, early aughts fashion now anyway. But I sort of feel like the show was a bit ahead of even its time with putting some of those looks on the girls. So if you ever change your mind, I do think the fashion is one of the reasons to do it. And um, yeah, that's why I was wondering about the graphic novel, like how much how much of uh, that fashion was determined by the old stuff versus the new stuff. I feel like the costume designer for that series must have had so much fun. So much fun. <laughs> oh, it was so cute. If you ever change your mind, let me know and we'll have to talk about it because Stacy has some really great moments. So let's talk about Stacy. I would say that there are two like major happenings in this book. The first is really Stacy's personal struggle. And then of course the babysitters have a big drama going on as well. So I think we'll start by talking about Stacy because this book is called The Truth About Stacy. It's her book. It's the first book that readers actually get in her voice. And so that makes it really significant. The first four books are like considered super important by all Babysitters Club fans because each one corresponds to one of those four core members and their experience. So at this point, Stacy is still pretty new to town. I believe it's only been about two months chronologically since she moved to town and the Babysitter's Club started. So they're just like still kind of finding their footing with this whole business thing. And we do hear a little bit about Stacy's diagnosis, what brought her to Stony Brook. It's clear that even though her parents told her that they moved because of her dad's job, like she feels a lot of responsibility for why they left this fantastic life in New York because they wanted her to have cleaner air. She also had some major social issues at school. Lane is such a difficult queen bee kind of friend to have. <laughs> and I was really taken with Stacy's personal journey in this book because it's really about her agency and like her having control over and say 
in what happens to her body. And that totally would have missed me when I was a little kid reading this book. Absolutely. So I was so impressed with how Stacy and Charlotte's mother handled, what's her last name? Dr. Johansson, yeah. Johansson, that's right. How Dr. Johansson handled the situation, just like providing a safe space for Stacy to take the steps that she felt she needed that were best for her health. And I think my first reaction when I read that was, so Stacy's parents want to do all these experimental tests on her to figure out the source of her diabetes or the, the cure for right. her diabetes, I guess, not really the source. They want like a miracle and they are, they're going to take her to this, to this holistic doctor, which actually felt very 2023 yeah. in a way. Yeah. I have so many thoughts about this naturopath yeah, doctor. Totally. It's like, which like biohacking Instagram bro are you? Like, yes. They're just so relevant. But obviously Stacy feels Like she's just settling down in Stony Brook and she wants to commit to her life there. She doesn't want to be put through a battery of tests. And so she didn't feel comfortable talking to her parents about that. So she went to another trusted adult. That would have gone right over my head as a kid, but clearly it did subtly have an impact on me because I recognized that's what she was doing now. And I loved that messaging. I thought it was such a subtle way for Anna and Martin to just kind of like slyly let it out there that, hey, your parents don't have to be the only ones Mm -hmm. that you go to, but find an adult that you do feel comfortable with uh, who can be your ally. And I just loved that message so much. That's a great point. And I think that Dr. Johansson is such a great character for a number of reasons. I think, first of all, like if I think back to my my like seven, eight, nine, ten year old media consumption. I'm not sure that there were that many women who were doctors in those early days of my like just being a sponge for for pop culture. And just the fact that like in this book, she is always referred to as Dr. Johansson. Like I almost had to police myself a little bit as I was reading it because so often the books I read for the podcast, the books that are like stuck in this weird time capsule, Anybody who's referred to as a doctor is a man, is identified as a man. And so, of course, that's not how I read contemporary fiction, but just the way that I have been like conditioned with SSR books in particular, I'm like used to that. And so I kept having this like really happy little reminder. Every time Anna Martin specified that Dr. Johansson is Charlotte's mom, I was like, oh, like that's so cool. And it shouldn't be that way, but that's unfortunately how it is because that was just not a thing as much um, when these books were written in the late 80s and early 90s. So love that about Dr. Johansson. And I love that Stacy, as you said, Rochelle, like used all of her resources and wasn't afraid to ask for help. And I also thought that the way that Dr. Johansson responded and handled the situation seemed really measured and appropriate. Like now putting on my adult hat, the fact that she listened to Stacy, like you said, was a safe space for her, but then also was like, I'm a little uncomfortable. This does put me in a weird situation, but let me think about it. Like she wasn't afraid to just say, let me take a minute on this because this is something that I, as an adult, like often find myself having to do is being like, okay, you don't always have to answer something right away. Like you don't have to respond immediately, just like take a beat. And so I love that Dr. Johansson did that. And I just think that she she approached Stacy with a lot of respect while also having a lot of respect for Stacy's parents. And she was direct with Stacy about her concerns about this holistic doctor, but she also knew that it would be hard for Stacy's parents to like absorb this information after they'd gone to all the trouble to get this appointment. So she like wrote a letter and this is, you know, in 2023, this I'm sure would have been handled in a much different way because there are so many other ways that they could have been in touch. But she like sealed a letter in an envelope and gave it to Stacy and was like, okay, when you go to New York, after you go see this holistic doctor, give them this letter and it will sort of affirm what you're telling them, which is that I'm not comfortable seeing this holistic doctor. I want to stop trying all of these like different potential miracle cures. I found this other doctor that I feel really good about. And so I just, I think given like the limitations of technology and I guess the limitations of the relationship, like I don't really know how well Dr. Johansson is meant to know the McGill's. It just seemed like everybody did the best that they could in this situation. Mm, yeah, and I thought that Stacy's parents actually handled 
things really well when Stacy approached them. You know, I, sh- I thought it was so adult of her. You know, they went to this little cafe after Stacy went to the holistic doctor and they had their lunch and she just said, you know, okay, I have something to talk to you about. And I think for a lot of kids that age, that kind of formal conversation can feel a little stilted or eye roll inducing, you know, oh gosh, I don't want to have a conversation with my parents, but just kind of showing that that's available to you, that you can sit down and talk to your parents about your concerns in a measured calm way, I think was a good message. And I think, I mean, I think her parents reacted probably a little bit better than mine might have, you know, because like they were just like, that's fine. We've spent, you know, how many dollars on this <laughs> naturopath doctor. But then I loved when they went to go see Dr. Graham, who was the more measured doctor, the more rational one. I really appreciated that I think the only time race was mentioned in this entire book was to note that Dr. Barnes was a black man. And I think that that she even, I made a note that they said he was a tall black man with sparkling eyes and a deep voice. And I just thought that was, you don't normally get that type of description for the adults in the book. And just it immediately created the sense of safety and security around him. Like this is someone that we like, this is someone that we trust. And I just thought that was just so interesting that that was the only time race was mentioned was to kind of highlight this heroic doctor who was the voice of reason. It was just felt kind of ahead of its time, I guess, which it's so funny because sometimes I feel she does that in those books. And then sometimes I feel like the way she talks about race is totally 1990s or 1980s. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Sometimes she gets it really right. And then and maybe it's by accident, you know, like, I don't know that she was necessarily sitting down when she wrote this book in 1985 or 1986. And was like, this is how I'm going to present race. And it's going to like be groundbreaking. But you're right. It's, it definitely is a different way of describing a person of color compared to other descriptions that I read when I was a kid. And like, that's, that sucks that it's so different, but it is different. And it's reassuring. I loved his character. I love the way he spoke to Stacy as someone who experiences a lot of anxiety around doctors and like all things medical. I just I I personally felt reassured by the way he spoke to Stacy and her parents. He does a whole examination of her. He asks her lots of questions. He gives her the opportunity to speak freely to him without her parents in the room. And then he brings her parents in and he says Although Stacy has taken the move to Connecticut and the change of schools and friends in stride, she seems to feel quite unsettled about her disease. She wants to be able to have some control over it, but she's a little afraid of it. And then he hands it back to Stacy and she says, every time I think I understand what's going on, we see some other doctor who tells us to do something different. And the doctor goes on to explain, like, Stacy's in really good health, especially for where she was a year ago. We earlier in the book had gotten a flashback to her diagnosis and how she had been so, so, so sick. I mean, it sounds like really scary stuff. And so Dr. Graham is very much like saying to Stacy's parents, you have a really responsible kid and she's taking good care of herself. And she's stepped up to take on the responsibility of managing her sugar and watching what she eats. And now like maybe we need to take care of her like emotional health and her mental health. And it's sort of ironic now that I think about it because the big pitch with the holistic doctor was like, you know, this doctor doesn't just look at your physical health. He also is going to look at your physical and mental health. And in the end, like that's kind of what Dr. Barnes is doing too, but in a way that just seems a little bit more straightforward maybe. Yeah, definitely. It was interesting to me, the title of the book, The Truth About Stacy. Yeah, I didn't love it. I didn't love it. And it reminded me more of that original movie when the big Stacy plot there was she likes a 17-year-old and she hides the fact from Luca that she has diabetes. And so I think I didn't really remember the plot of this book. And that's kind of what I thought I was going to get in this book. And it didn't seem like there was a big secret about her that was being revealed. So we are all aware that that Stacy had diabetes at one point, Christy was getting out snacks for everyone. And Stacy says she grabbed a carrot, which I assumed was for me. <laughs> you know, like everyone's making allowances for Stacy's diabetes. So it didn't seem like there was some truth or concealment of the truth about her. The title felt a little off for me. 
Yeah, it felt like the title was trying to create a little bit more um, like sensationalism around what was happening with Stacey because you're right, nobody who we're actually spending a lot of time with on the page in The Truth About Stacey, like all of those people know. Everybody knows and that's kind of the beauty of it because in New York, Stacey hadn't been able to tell anybody. Her parents had only told like immediate family and so that actually caused a lot of additional stress on Stacy's life because it put stress on her relationships. Her friends didn't know what was wrong with her. And so when she moved to Stony Brook, they kind of put it out in the open. And so I think the title is a little bit misleading because it suggests that like this is a book about Stacy keeping the secret when in reality, it's about Stacy telling the truth. Like there was never really a truth to be told because as far as we know in Stony Brook, she's always been telling it and she does end up having a heart to heart with her former ex BFF Lane and like telling the truth about her diabetes to Lane but the title did feel a little bit confusing yeah definitely and I think I'm curious about your thoughts I actually felt that the stronger and more predominant plot in the book was actually the B plot the about you know the warring babysitters club so I don't know if you want to transition and talk about that now or or put a pin in this but I actually felt that Stacy's plot line was secondary to the other plot in the book yeah it's almost as if the author was like I've introduced this other character we're doing this cycle thing where like now I have to get to Stacy I know that I want her diabetes to be a part of her story and I need to figure out a way to work it in but I think she, I think if that was the goal, she could have maybe done more to bring it to the forefront. Um, I did want to read, I found the like, I think it wasn't in the original edition, but it was in one of the earlier reprints of the book, the letter to readers that that Anna Martin wrote, um, which I just thought was kind of interesting. It maybe speaks a little bit to like why she decided to do this for the first Stacey book, even though I think you and I agree it could have been executed a little bit better. Here are a few lines. She wrote, Many kids have asked me why I created a character with diabetes. As you may know, when I started writing The Babysitter's Club, I wanted to create a group of characters who are very different from each other, but who work well together. Each of the members of the BSC faces her own set of difficulties. I thought it would be interesting if one character faced physical or medical problems. I chose diabetes because it affects many kids and because I have two friends with diabetes. I also wanted to create a character who copes with her disability in a positive way. Stacy doesn't ignore her illness. She deals with it responsibly, but she tries to not let it interfere with her life. Not long after this first book about Stacy was published, I began to hear from kids who are diabetic themselves. Many of them have written to say that the books about Stacy have helped their friends understand the illness. So I think like that speaks to the fact that like yes, it was important, you know, for Anna Martin to cover a lot of this material in this book, but I wonder if she had a chance to do it again. If the focus is going to be on Stacy's diabetes in this book, if maybe she would have saved all of the other juicy like Warring Babysitters Club story <laughs> for another book because it's hard not to think that that's more intriguing. Definitely. And it was just like the stakes were so much higher. That felt like such a dramatic plot point. Yeah. Well, and the stakes are high for Stacey too, because she calls out pretty explicitly, like, if this club falls apart, it's not just about like the babysitting, like these are my friends, and this is why I'm happy here. And so if the other babysitters club, aka the babysitters agency, hilarious, gains traction and puts us out of business, and I'm screwed. And here's this is another another point for why you should watch the Netflix adaptation. They have a whole episode about this, about the babysitters agency, and it's like you know hot, cool older girls that come in and try to run the BSC out of town. So okay, this is my weekend binge. All right, I, I need to watch. You it. won't regret it. <laughs> the one other thing I wanted to say about Stacy before we turn our attention to the supposed B plot, although it sounds like you and I both think it was the A plot, is this relationship with Lane and how it sort of resolves in the end. So we find out early in the book that Lane and Stacy no longer speak, but when Stacy's parents bring her to New York at the end of the book for these doctor's appointments, we find out that they're staying with Lane's family, which is truly like like my 11 or 12 year old self. I'm like, this is a literal nightmare. Like, why would you do this to me? And my adult self was said this is a literal, literal nightmare. Yeah. I would not want to stay with my daughter's friend's parents when I was in trouble. I mean, maybe the parents were friends too, but also wouldn't you get a hotel? It was just so bizarre. And then her parents were very dismissive of Stacy's reaction. They said when Stacy said, you know, I don't want to stay here. They said, oh well, you're you should be over that. You guys are your friends again. It's fine. It's like well. 
That's not how I feel. Yeah, as respectful as they were to Stacy about her health, I think that that respect was lost in the conversation about her her social life. And when she does confront Lane about what's going on, Lane explains that she was acting weird because she was jealous of the attention that Stacy was getting. And look, that makes sense to me. I can totally see how that would work for a kid. Like if you see your best friend getting all this attention from teachers not having to do homework, maybe you would get mad and you wouldn't want to talk to them. But I do just in general, like, can we just stop using jealousy as like a reason to excuse all kinds of bad behavior? It's so annoying. It's so annoying. And it is so unlikely to me that Lane would have had that, that understanding of her emotional journey at that point. I don't think that she would have. I think that the Babysitter's Club books tend to do that thing that Goodreads reader reviews tend to complain about, that they're saying there's too much telling and not enough showing. But I think, I mean, in general, I do think that the telling is appropriate for these books rather than the showing because we have limited word count. They're short. There's less room for nuance and subtlety. So I think I understand why the author felt, I just have to wrap this up quickly. Let's just, you know, put a nice bow on it and we'll move on. I did have to suspend my disbelief a little bit for that part. But then I like that Stacy kind of got her back at the end when they had a phone call to catch up and Stacy went down the laundry list of her life updates and then she was like, gotta go, bye, sorry I can't hear about your life. She's like, I have so many friends here, I'm having the best time. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, you can tell me more about your stuff next time. Yeah, we'll talk Good later you, when I get my yeah. phone line. Yeah, I mean, I think I really generally like what we learned about Stacy's family in this book. Um, we learn more about her life her parents seem generally great I also thought it was interesting that we get a little peek into infertility in this book um, which I thought was fascinating and definitely not something I would have picked up on when I was a kid Stacy talks explicitly about how her parents had wanted to have other children and they tried really hard to have other children and there's these implications of these lengths that they went to medically to make that happen and they eventually just realized it wasn't meant to be. And so they only have one daughter. And you can tell Stacy feels some like guilt about that. And that plays into her anxiety about her diabetes because if she's like, if something happens to me, then like my parents are going to be alone. So I just, as a woman in my 30s, you know, I was like, oh, how interesting that Anna Martin wasn't afraid to include a mention of, of infertility in a book meant for kids. Yeah, and I made a note, too, that she, I thought it was a little odd that she did this, but I was also cool with it, that she talked about women's bodies post-pregnancy. I wrote it down. I I wrote it down. I was shook when I read it. Okay, wait. (laughs) Do you want to read the passage? I want to read it because it, it, I I just don't understand. Okay, so (laughs) Mrs. Newton is Jamie Newton's mom, and she has a baby in this book, which is like, at the beginning, it's all the babysitters can talk about. She has the baby... And then later on, Stacy tells us, I was surprised to see that Mrs. Newton still looked, well, fat. Not pregnant exactly, but not the way I thought she would look after the baby was born. And I'm like kind of of two minds about this because I think, yes, like, it, like let's talk about the fact, like we as adults, this whole bounce back culture thing is bullshit. Like this is not what happens to people's bodies after they give birth. They often do look pregnant for a long time until they're feeling better and healed and just like until their body does what it has to do. And I know, you know, we, we've talked about the word fat on the podcast before and how we're all kind of on this journey with the word fat. And I think it is important that we're taking some of the power away, but there's something about the way that it was expressed in this book and in the context of 1986 specifically that did feel weird. Well, and it's like, I think, is this a valid lesson for young readers that, oh, when you have a baby, your body changes. It's not, you know, a streamlined process. Like, sure, that's a fine lesson, but why here in this book? It's very offhand. Yeah. (laughs) It was like, like, is there, that seemed like something she was dealing with, like, either herself or a friend, and she was just like, I'm just gonna slide this one in here. I don't know what her intention was in including that. It just really took me out of yeah. the reading experience. That's very well said. I also just like don't think that Stacy 
would notice. It's like, I just, I didn't buy it. It felt very random. So I agree yeah. that was weird. But let's talk about, <laughs> let's talk about the babysitter's agency and just the entrepreneurial spirit of these girls. This really is a book about business. This is a book about how to start businesses. This is a book about how to deal with your competition. This is a book about value propositions. There's just a lot here. So all of you entrepreneurs out there, if you're looking for some real practical advice, grab yourself a copy of The Truth About Stacy because it's not really about The Truth About Stacy. It's about business. The Babysitter's Agency is led by these girls named Liz and Michelle who are older and who Claudia right off the bat is like, these girls are sassy. Like they're like the implication is like they're bad girls, which I think there's a conversation to be had there. Something that I sort of found funny about this whole plot is that like, these girls have a whole moral code that hangs on babysitting. Whether or not you babysit, how you babysit, how you deal with families when you babysit. And that's something we've talked about in other Babysitter's Club episodes where it's like, you know, there's, it's like the feminine urge to babysit, you know, like what kind of person (laughs) are you based on whether or not you have that instinct or that desire to babysit. And that's like just kicked up about a thousand notches in this book because immediately you know that like Liz and Michelle couldn't possibly be fit babysitters because they're, you know, troubling kinds of students. And so that's her first impression of them. And they snap their gum. God forbid. (laughs) Perish the thought, honestly. Um, So yeah, they're out there like marketing their new business. They're doing a great job of getting the word out. Like they really are. They have some innovative marketing ideas and their business model is a little bit different than the BSCs because they're kind of going for more of a volume business. Like they're recruiting all of these babysitters. Liz and Michelle are the central sort of command center for the agency Nobody else has to go to these meetings. And we know like the BSC loves their meetings and it's their fun hang time. But like the meetings are sort of useless for anybody who's not Claudia because Claudia is the only one with the phone. And so like they don't all need to be in the room. And that's what Liz and Michelle are saying. They're like, if if we pick up the phone, we can take commission from all of these other babysitters and just recruit them. They're recruiting older babysitters who have later curfews. They're recruiting boys. Like they are just really (laughs) trying to diversify what they can offer. So Christy's freaking out. She's really nervous. What did you think about this whole like introduction of the agency? It's funny. I just, like you said earlier, I don't remember Christy being such an emotionally reactive character. And it was so upsetting to her that you know, she felt that this babysitter's agency was threatening the existence of their club, of their business. And what I thought was so interesting was the way that she tackled it was, we have to be better. And that I thought was a great message. You know, that's, I mean, she did have some other crazy ideas that, and some were implemented and some were not. But Just, I mean, that's, this is where we get the kid kit story, right? You know, like this is where kid kits come in where, you know what, we're going to be more engaging than the other babysitters club. We are going to be better prepared. That was their first tactic. And really that's what won them all the business in the end. That's why they were able to defeat the babysitters agency was just because they're better babysitters. But it was kind of just that terror of all out war was about to be waged between these two clubs was just felt like kind of heightened anxiety as a reader. Yeah, and I think like it brought me back to the insecurity of like being a sixth grader around eighth graders and like how scary that is. And all of these years later, I'm like, first of all, you're all children. So like, I don't know why, (laughs) why any of you think you have the right to intimidate others in this group like you're all children but it does and you know the fact that like one of Christie's ideas is to put sandwich boards on these girls and make them walk around school in these sandwich boards I mean it's so hilarious and so humiliating and just like plays on every lingering insecurity that I still have from my own middle school years but I do think it's like so it's it captures so well like you know wanting something so badly not knowing how to get it, not wanting to be uncool, but also like wanting to fight for what you believe in. I think like Christy does think the Babysitter's Club is cool. Like I think she she thinks that anything to do with the club is cool, including wearing sandwich boards, even though the other girls are like, this is awful. Like, why are you making us do this? 
And uh, yeah, Stacy gets asked to a dance when she's wearing one, which I loved as a visual. But yeah, I mean, I just, I think it taps into like all of these like deep-seated emotions that I still have from being their age of wanting to keep what's yours. Like, you know, I think they felt like they had the market cornered on this really cool thing. And Stacy says that at one point, like we started this, the Babysitter's Club was my idea and they're stealing it. And that's just so much more heightened when you're a preteen. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting that the threat of the babysitter's agency meant something different to, I assume, all of the babysitter's club members. We don't really know what Claudia and Marianne's fears about it dissolving are. They, you know, we know that they're invested in the babysitter's club. We don't really get their take on how they feel about this. But I thought it was interesting that for Christy, she felt this sense of pride and ownership over the club that she wanted to protect at all costs. Whereas for Stacy, as you mentioned previously, it was like, yes, I love babysitting. Yes, I love my clients. But really, this is about protecting my friend group. And I am going to show up and wear that sandwich board, even though I don't want to, because I want to maintain this social situation that I have newly found and that feels good for me. So I recently moved to a new state and making friends as a 11 year old or a 13 year old, you know, it's like, that's hard. Making friends as a 35 year old is hard. And so I started running with a friend and I'm like, I will protect this little running club at all costs. <laughs> like if there's a, you know, if there's a running agency that starts down the road, I will, I don't know what I will do. <laughs> like, and I think it was just, that really resonated with me. It was just that feeling of joy and relief when you make a friend, when you make a new friend that feels like a good fit and the fear of that going away. I, I really understood that as an adult reading the book. I love the way you put that. And I also am thinking about how Stacy and Christy are often like, I think put on sort of opposite ends of some sort of like a personality spectrum. Like they're so different, you know, one's mature, one's immature, one loves boys, one, one isn't into boys, one loves clothes, one wears jeans all the time. You know, these very like superficial markers of personality and like just general identity, but they both really care about this thing. And the fact that like Stacy is ready to step in and like she is, I think, almost as worked up about the babysitter's agency as Christy. It's Claudia and Marianne who are much more like, let's chill out. Like, let's talk about ways we can kind of make some compromises. We don't need to take on all of these new challenges. We don't need to add all of these other things to our model. But Stacy's like, yeah, 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 whatever Christy said, like we have to do this. <laughs> And I really liked to see them kind of on the same side of something. Yeah. And it was a reminder to me that this does happen a lot in the books, that the kind of alliances between the friends do shift back and forth every once in a while. We all know that Marianne and Christy are BFFs. We know that Claudia and Stacey are thick as thieves. But that does happen, that the there's that, oh, I understand this part of you, or I connect with this this piece of your personality more so than someone else. And so I thought that was a nice reminder that our friends don't have to be everything for us. And this is why it's nice to have many friends, yeah. you know, is we can get something different from every person. And it feels like a healthier way to approach friendship. And they're faced with a very adult decision when they start getting like really concrete evidence from the kids they babysit for that these babysitters agency sitters are terrible so they've had a little bit of experience because they actually recruited these girls named Janet and Leslie to help them and it turns out Janet and Leslie were spies and you know shocker they they were terrible they missed their jobs and Christy was so worried that it was going to ruin the babysitters club's reputation thankfully it didn't so they already know based on their experience with Janet and Leslie that like the agency is like less than stellar but they start hearing from Jamie and from Charlotte that all of these other things are happening. Like I, some of these, some of these anecdotes are a little bit off the wall. Like Jamie picks up a couch cushion and shows them that one of the agency babysitters like burned a hole in it with a cigarette. And like, of course, this is like 
so many years ago, just the mention of cigarettes. I'm like, right. Like people used to just like smoke in people's homes. Yeah. And I guess like use somebody's sofa as an ashtray. I don't know. They're bringing their boyfriends over. So it's just, you know, the kids are like, things feel weird. Like (laughs) this doesn't feel right. The kids are unhappy. And then our babysitters, our girls get really worked up. And this is where like the morality of babysitting really comes into play because they're walking together one day. It's cold. And Jamie Newton, who's three years old and one of our favorite clients, is outside frolicking in his yard unsupervised. And he has no hat, no gloves, no coat. And they're like, okay, this has to stop. Like this is, you know, this is where they're like, we are, we are the good ones and the agency sitters are the bad ones. And so they have to decide this is their, this is where the conundrum comes in because they have to decide, are they going to tell the parents, will this look worse for them if it looks like they're just trying to like badmouth the agency or should they kind of let it run its course? And Stacy's mom tells Stacy, like, I don't think it should really matter to you how it makes you look, if you're genuinely concerned about the kid's safety, you really should just tell the truth. Um, And so they do. They end up having a heart-to-heart with, I believe Mrs. Newton is the first parent they talk to. And Mrs. Newton is devastated. And it becomes sort of this whole like neighborhood crusade, this neighborhood fight to get the agency out. And I thought that that scene, which I would say maybe felt like the climax of the book when they see Jamie in the yard, I was very impressed with how the Babysitter's Club handled that. I felt even the words they chose felt very adult. I think it was Stacy kind of got down to Jamie's level, knelt down in front of him and said, okay, I need you, or maybe it was Christy, but said, I need you to do something for me. You need to go back home, get your hat and gloves. If you want to play outside, you have to do it in your backyard. And just the way that they responded felt very adult to me. Which was a reminder, I think one of the reasons we love these characters is they feel aspirational to us. As kids, we could imagine ourselves as cool, responsible, adult-like humans. And now, as an adult, I imagine myself as a cool, responsible adult. (laughs) (laughs) I was reminded that the babysitters, while they're not perfect, they respond to crisis and stressful situations with such calm, cool collectedness that it's it's very aspirational for me, at least as a reader. Yeah, and all together, like they're able to respond to things in a way that I think all of us would want to. I mean, it, individually, I think all of them would probably like do things that they might regret, but when they're together, they manage to make smart calm decisions um, that ultimately lead to their victory because the moms the moms will no longer employ the agency even though those girls can stay out later and even though there are a few boys in the mix the babysitters club gets permission to watch the baby which is something they really wanted like they were upset that they didn't feel as though um, mrs newton trusted them to be with the newborn and they're like it means so much to them that that they get to be with lucy so in the end, there's a lot of wins here. The Babysitter's Club starts to get business back. Stacy gets to secure her place in Stony Brook. She's not going to go to this doctor that she doesn't trust anymore. She and Lane are back on good terms. It's a happy ending, just like we talked about before. I will say that the romance novelist in me was like, I need more details about what happened at the snowflake dance with Pete Black. <laughs> well, okay, so I was worried that we were going to find out that Stacy's trip to New York for the doctor was over the snowflake dance. I thought that that was going to be a big conflict because much was made over like the date of the dance when he asks her. And I was like, oh shit, like she's not going to be able to go and she's going to forget. And then she's going to be in New York and and Pete's going to be like waiting at her house. But thankfully that didn't happen and she does get to go. But it was weird that we didn't get any details. Yeah, I wanted the dirt on it. Yeah, okay, (laughs) we could have used more dirt other than the lack of dance dirt. What did you think about this experience of coming back to this book for the first time after so many years? Did it mostly hold up for you? Did it disappoint you? I think it held up uh, and even shown in a a brighter way because I found such comfort in reading it, not just for nostalgia reasons, but just it made me feel good to think that, yes, it's not perfectly written. I mean, I wrote a book. It's not perfectly written, but I felt there was such good messaging in it. 
there was such hopefulness, such thoughtfulness in the book that it made me feel excited for a new generation of readers to encounter it and have this book be formative for them in ways that will be similar and different than it was for me. And I actually ordered like the first 10 books in the series because I want to reread them all now. It just, it just made me feel so warm and fuzzy for so many reasons. Oh, well, you'll have to let me know what you think once you reread those first 10 books. I will. I can't wait. (laughs) Other than the Babysitter's Club, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? So the first one is a cookbook, which I know most people don't sit down and read cookbooks cover to cover, to which I say you are missing out. But (laughs) it was recently published by Tamara Adler. It's called The Everlasting Meal. And the thesis of this cookbook is smart use of leftovers. So the book is categorized into categories. So, you know, you have your soups, you have your grains and beans, you have meat and fish, things of that nature. And while there are recipes in the book, it's really organized by ingredients. So, you know, I have leftover mashed potatoes. What do I do with it? And she's just She's such a funny, clever writer that it's it's just joyful to read her writing, which is often witty and wry and, and funny. And it reads almost like um, a bit like a really lovely memoir, <laughs> you know, because we learn more about her style as a cook. And, um, you know, someone who does a lot of food writing, I encounter a lot of cookbooks. But it was refreshing to read a cookbook that felt less about memorizing recipes and more about giving the reader of the cookbook skills and agency to be confident in the kitchen. So whether you're a prolific cook or you're a little nervous about cooking, I would recommend The Everlasting Meal. And I recently read, and this book has stayed with me for a long time. I read it two months ago, but I can't stop thinking about it, is um, George Saunders' most recent book of essays. And I will read anything George Saunders writes because he's funny and clever and he teaches creative writing at Syracuse University, which is where I'm from. I'm from Syracuse. So I feel this special connection to (laughs) George Saunders. But it was was a departure for him, I think, in terms of style. It was a bit dystopian. A lot of the stories had that kind of eerie, uh, something's not right with the world vibe. And I don't normally like dystopian books. I like the babysitter's book because it makes me feel warm and fuzzy. But every single essay was just honed to a sharp edge and uh, really beautifully written. So very two um, unrelated recommendations. But uh, those are the two books that have stayed with me most recently. Something for everybody then. Well, I will include links to both of those recommendations in the show notes. And I also, of course, will link to your book, Ruby Spencer's Whiskey Year. Can you tell us about it? I can. Uh, So it's about Ruby Spencer, who is an American in her mid-30s, who decides to push the reset button on her life, move to Scotland for a year, because why the heck not? Who doesn't want to do that? Uh, With aspirations of writing a cookbook herself. And when she gets to this tiny town in Scotland, which she chose from throwing a dart blindfolded at a map, she realizes it's not quite the Scotland that she thought it was. It doesn't look like an outlander set. But she ends up falling in love with the town anyway. And the whole cast of characters who lives and works in the small town and the icing on the cake, of course, is broken, the uh, handsome town handyman. So uh, it's it's really a story about uh, what happens when you set aside your expectations and let the reality of your situation take control. Hmm. I love that. Was it inspired by like your own travels? Have you been to a town like this? Well, I did go to Scotland to research Amazing. the book. Um, and Thistlecross, the fictional town where Ruby Spencer's Whiskey is set kind of a combination of many different Scottish towns that I visited. But often, you know, we have as Americans, we have this very romanticized view of what the Scottish Highlands are like. And a lot of the towns are very small, not super sexy. You know, there's no gorgeous views. Uh, you know, if, unless you're on the coast, you don't get the cliffs that we think of when we think of Scotland. We don't get the raging ocean below. Um, but there's so much heart there. Every single town that I visited in the Highlands is just 
full of lovely people. And I should know because I was like a hot mess American on vacation alone. I was like getting tire punctures on the side of the road, relying on the kindness of strangers. So uh, every I will say that the loveliness of all the uh, Scottish characters was very much influenced by the loveliness of Scottish people that I met. <laughs> well, it sounds like a lovely read. Ruby Spencer's Whiskey Year listeners, get yourself a copy. There will be a link to it in the show notes. This has been so fun, Rochelle. Thank you for taking the time to chat with me and congratulations on the book. Thank you. And thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>